Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. This week, we will discuss solar power. In many ways, the sector is booming, with over 400 gigawatts installed last year, over 50% more than the 2021 figure. However, there are some headwinds. Some countries have been curtailing solar production. Others are looking to prevent what they deem to be excessive permits, while recent moves by Dutch suppliers to impose a levy on outputs to manage overproduction amid the potential for negative prices. Why is this happening? And are there alternative ways to deal with the days and hours of high solar output so that such curtailments and levies don't threaten our green energy targets? Helping me, Richard Saracen, to discuss these issues and much, much more is Naomi Cheviard of Solar Power Europe. A warm welcome to you, Naomi. Thanks for having me. Let's put this in context, what what the current situation is, Naomi. China has installed more than 70 gigawatts of solar this year, um, or in the first six months of the year. What about Europe? Where, where, are the, where are the hot spots and where do you think development has been a bit too slow? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, indeed, China had quite an impressive growth uh, last year. I think it's more than 70% growth uh, year on year. But in Europe, we also had uh, good growth uh, last year. We had a bit more than 46 gigawatts in 2022. So that's a, a 45% growth. That's quite huge for, uh, for our continent. Um, when it comes to, uh, to trends, uh, we really have a couple of countries that are leaders. We have uh, Spain and Germany in particular. So Spain was uh, 8.4 gigawatts and Germany 7.5 gigawatts of new solar last year. Um, and uh, yeah, and Italy as well uh, was uh, also quite impressive. Spain and Italy in general were quite driven by uh, rooftop sea markets, so quite interesting to see. We had the super bonus in Italy that was quite uh, quite successful. Um, Germany remains the strong market because of the high governmental ambition. We have the uh, AEG, the Renewable Energy Act, that uh, facilitates uh, permitting. Um, and another interesting country that we see driving the market is Poland, uh, mostly for residential PV, because in the larger rooftop PV market or the utility scale segment, we uh, we still have difficulties with permitting. And then uh, where we're lagging a bit behind uh, is, uh, uh, well, uh, France uh, in particular, that actually decreased installation uh, last year by 15%. Uh, because we have slow, uh, slow political support, we just adopted a, a law on uh, on permitting that is uh, that is a bit disappointing for the sector, and and Portugal as well, where uh, where the support to residential solar weren't uh, as successful as we expected. How about the Netherlands? Is that somewhere in the middle? Yeah, the Netherlands has uh, a good growth with uh, four four gigawatts, uh, mostly mostly rooftop PV. Now, of course, in the Netherlands, we have a number of concerns with uh, with grid connections. Uh, the uh, government has released a map of grid capacity, uh, which indicates whether you can connect or not in a certain region of the country. And I think by now it's, uh, I would say, a half or two thirds of the country that is uh, in red. Mm. This is very interesting. I mean, I think we'll return to some of these countries later in the, in the discussion, Naomi. But um, in 2023, do you expect 
us to exceed the 46 gigawatt that was installed last year? I mean, can we, the IEA have said that we should, you know, we should be around 60 if we are to meet the, the targets that we put ourselves for 2030. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's still early, too early to say, of course. Uh, what what we uh, forecasted last year, end of last year, is uh, that we will hit the 50 gigawatt mark. Uh, what I can say for the moment is that uh, we're um, we're on the on the right track uh, in our global market outlook that we released at InterSolar in uh, in June. Um, we, we we were seeing almost all, all EU countries increasing the solar market, so we're really on the on the right track still with a, a big growth of Germany, of Poland, of Italy. Now, um, whether we will actually hit the 60 gigawatt mark uh, remains to be seen. And, and the development in, the, in Q4 this year will be, will be critical. Mm. I mean, I, I think I should also take this opportunity to say that I have 12 solar panels on my roof as well. So, um, you know, uh, I'm not maybe in some ways not completely objective, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I have uh, this is in Norway, where obviously in the summer months, it's been uh, this, the production has been, been very good. Well, especially in June when it was sunny. But just to put that in there. So we so we have the context. But, um, uh, you know, but if we want to talk about the headwinds, you know, me, um, you know, you know, I wanted to, to to discuss the solar curtailment. Um, where where is this happening primarily, and and why is it happening? Solar curtailment happens uh, in general across uh, across Europe because it's a structural tool used by especially distribution grid operators to manage their network. When they have a grid constraints, they use curtailment. We've been talking a lot about uh, fancier ways to manage the grids with local flexibility market or uh, or time of use grid tariffs so you know like an economic price signal that would make a consumer react uh, and and uh, and be flexible when the grid constraints happens the reality is that DSOs are infrastructure managers and still use uh, a lot of curtailment um it's difficult to have data on uh, on the volumes of curtailment uh, there was an obligation to report that is uh, today not uh, uh, not really done, and we we don't have a lot of data now. You probably uh, read uh, the news in April last year with uh, early April this year, sorry, uh, with Czech Republic and Poland, uh, where the TSOs um, the TSOs announced that uh, that uh, they would curtail massively um, uh, solar uh, because it was creating a, a threat to the grid. And here, I think in this particular case. The reason is that uh, those countries still have a lot of inflexible power, like coal, like nuclear, um, which is too expensive to curtail, whereas solar is uh, is rather uh, cheap to curtail. And on the other hand, an underdevelopment of uh, flexible capacities, uh, for example, a battery storage, for example, demand response that could uh, absorb the um, the oversupply of uh, of solar power. And we saw even in Spain, I mean, uh, I've seen some numbers of over 350 uh, gigawatt hours curtailed last year. Um, have you got any up-to-date figures for, for Spain for, for this year? No. Unfortunately not. I, we, I, I wish we had, uh, I wish we had more, more figures because it's, it's part of uh, monitoring the situation and understanding when, curt when, when congestion happens, when curtailment happens. Because this is really what we need, understanding the yeah the the situation now, so that we can uh, anticipate and and take remedy solutions and 
and maybe design uh, yeah uh, markets markets for uh, for containment instead of uh, of a slight slight containment of solar because it seems you know a little bit crazy that you're especially in countries like Poland which has seen a massive rollout of, of solar power but yet when it comes to the crunch they they're allowing coal plants to continue to run and not the solar i mean doesn't that seem that some seems seems very very odd to me anyway yeah i mean the, the reason is that it's uh, it's it's sometimes it's too expensive to to shut down and uh, and restart uh, coal plants so in a way it's better to uh, keep running the uh, the coal plants and uh, and instead curtain the solar power. Sometimes uh, another reason is that you have uh, some sections, geographical sections of the grids that are congested and you, ha- you don't have the right consumers with the right uh, generators at, at the same in the same area of the grid. So we're talking primarily the Czech Republic, Poland, and Spain, or other other areas where containment does happen. Honestly, it's 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 really throughout Europe. Uh, it's it's a measure now. The degree and the gravity of curtainment will depend on several factors. Again, Poland and and Czech Republic. The the issue is uh, is the inflexible uh, generation fleet. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, you might have a too uh, too strong deployment of uh, of solar and EV that that congests the grid. In France, you don't have uh, that much of an issue because the solar market is not as big. So, right, it really, it really depends on the on the country. Absolutely. Um, and another, I mean, what what's the alternative, Nomi, to to curtailment in, in your view or solar power Europe's view? Well, uh, one thing is to reinforce the grid, uh, for sure. And and uh, because if there is a grid congestion, it means that uh, that there's probably a need to uh, develop more cable or more grid infrastructure. Um, and that means uh, that means better planning, uh, but also better investments. And in particular, one thing that the sector has been asking for is anticipatory investment. Instead of waiting for the congestion, waiting for the the, the connection, having the the grid operator anticipating all of these future congestions and investing a bit ahead. Um, another element is uh, to develop flexibility solutions. So it's like a consumer switching off its uh, electric vehicles at uh, at noon uh, to uh, to uh, switch it back on uh, in the evening, for example, or battery storage. And here are two big elements. The first one is that when you install your device, um, it's already flexibility ready. So deploy the flexibility sources on the ground. Uh, incentivize the consumers to buy, for example, a smart EV charger or a house that's already equipped with uh, digital controls. And the second thing is uh, once you have all of this fleet of intelligent and smart de- devices on the ground, have the right economic signals uh, instead of just I have a congestion and I shut down the, the solar panels. Um, and, and here, how, how do you bring, how do you create these economic signals? There are a lot of good ideas. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, tariffs, uh, so smart tariffs, uh, explaining to consumers. For example, in, in California, you have a, a grid tariff um, where uh, if you charge your vehicle uh, during the middle of the day, during the solar peak, you pay a lower grid tariff than uh, if you charge it at seven when you don't have a lot of solar. It could be just a signal on the radio uh, or on TV. 
or it could be a fancy market where you have an operator that controls your installation for you and sends your uh, so your flexibility. Mm. I mean, I, I'd certainly um, <laughs> vote for something along those lines. I think it would be if I had the opportunity to charge my EV at uh, certain times or had the signals provided for me, I, I'd certainly do that. But um, that's just my own personal opinion. But uh, um, I think Another factor that is of concern, I think, for for you in particular, or the Solar Power Europe, is is the is negative prices and what that means for, for potential investments into solar power going forward. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, an increased occurrence of negative prices, certainly in in Northwest Europe, um, but also elsewhere. You know, in times of very low demand and high renewables output, in particular, so Sundays, um, you know, is, is is a key day there. But also other other parts of the day and other times of the week. Um, what what's your view here, uh, Naomi? How how is this impacting the expansion of of, of solar, both in on rooftop uh, at household scale, but also utilities scale? Uh, first, ne- negative prices, I think, are here to uh, the, the economic uh, translation of a big change in the in the electricity grid. Uh, and it's inherent to the transitional phase where where we are. Where it's it's again it's it's the same problem that uh, we have uh, lower demands and then uh, high renewable generation, and at the same time as uh, a, a, an inflexible fossil generation that is too expensive uh, to shut on and off. And so we'll uh, have these generators bidding negatively. To be sure to be taken instead of uh, of of having to to shut down. Um, so what does it mean? It means that we haven't yet found a way to uh, to accommodate this new electricity system in which we're living, where we'll we'll still need some uh, maybe some some fossil assets for uh, for a transition period or for very special cases, but we. The bulk of our energy will be produced by uh, by uh, renewables. So it means that eventually we have to displace consumption during the middle of the day, or we have to find a way to store it, etc. So it's the same the same type of uh, of questions. Um, I think it will definitely change the the solar industry uh, and impact it. The first thing is that uh, developers will have to take it into account and forecast it into a bit, very simply. You could also think that uh, it's a big uh, signal to to innovate, and I think negative prices are not always seen as a negative thing. You were mentioning that you'd be happy to uh, to um, to sell uh, the flexibility of your charger. There are a lot of consumers that are very happy to be paid to charge their car at noon. So you know, it's also like it's it's not a desirable uh, feature of the market, but it's also a very powerful signal to uh, to innovate. Now this said, um, you're right that we we need to uh, to take care of that, and we need to manage the transition, and we need to manage the the negative prices. Um, and here I think it's important to to say that negative prices impact solar investments only only if you let them. Uh, negative prices are dependent on uh, the current design of the electricity market where we're in dependent on how contracts for difference or support schemes are uh, are also designed so it's important that uh, uh, this is taken into account into the into the power markets um, 
for for existing for existing support schemes, you already have safeguards in order to protect investors. So, for example, in uh, in France, if you have uh, too high uh, number of negative uh, prices events, you you get a compensation. Uh, in Germany, there is a, you 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 can get um, uh, you you're not impacted by negative prices only if the negative prices last more than uh, two three four hours. Um, and for the future, it will be uh, it will be critical to think again about how we still give the price security uh, for uh, for solar investors while um, while tackling negative prices. And there's there's been, for example, a lot of discussions on uh, uh, remunerating uh, solar investors not on. Uh, um, not so much on the market prices, but more correlated to the capacity. So, uh, so you get a financial investors to install your capacity on the ground, but you're not so much hit by the negative prices that happen day after day. I mean, it seems to be you, you've highlighted sort of a patchwork of different sort of policies or measures across Europe then, I mean, dealing with negative prices or how people cope. Is, is there a case for saying you should have some regulation at EU level? Um, Yes and no, because I think I think the EU can and already uh, does protect uh, solar investors, right? There, there is uh, there is a provision in EU law that says that you can't change retroactively a support scheme um, that impacts negatively the economics of a solar project that was already commissioned, um, and and we can think of a number of principles that really protect uh, solar investors. We're working on that in the current uh, negotiations. Now it's also important to uh, keep a degree of flexibility and um, and leave still some room for for the national states to uh, to innovate and focus more on the exchange of of best practices rather than a one size fits all solution. Mm. I mean. If I turn to the Netherlands, we've talked a little bit about the Netherlands, uh, Naomi. Now, you, you, it seem, uh, it's in a massive rollout of, of solar power. Uh, and in recent weeks, we saw some suppliers um, looking to charge consumers that generate more than they consume um, to compensate their sort of profile premium. It, what do you make of this? What, what's, what's your view here? Is there a concern that this is um, just the start of it, that this, this kind of action could spread to, to other, other areas, other markets? In that example, the problem is not the physics. The problem is the economics and the fact that the supplier doesn't get back uh, its, its energy. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, doesn't get his money back, basically. Um, so... So yeah, I think what we need is to uh, to develop new business cases. There are two things: either you inject your electricity and you're able to uh, sell it, value it on markets through uh, through aggregators, so people that will uh, aggregate your energy and sell it on markets for you. But we need to make sure that those new players that are significantly different from big normal players that operate a, a nuclear plant or a gas plant can have access. To the market and can show that they deliver electricity like like others. Another interesting things that we're working on is uh, collective self consumption or energy sharing. It's it's a, a scheme that was developed uh, mostly in France, Portugal, Spain, where um, you uh, you self consume electricity not within your house 
but uh, within a certain segment of the grid. So, for example, under a substation. And that makes sense for the DSO because the DSO has an interest to have a sort of harmonious consumption and production under a, a certain segment of the grid. And in those business models, it's, again, an opportunity for suppliers to value local exchanges of electricity that at the same time make the make sense for the grid. That's very interesting. So like a, like a microgrid, I mean, I remember years ago, we were talking this in relation to the blockchain technology that sort of neighbors could trade with each other. And uh, is, is that what you're talking about here, Naomi? Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. It's uh, a microgrid without having to, to have uh, to have micro microgrids. Yeah. Within uh, the existing grids. Yeah. Within the existing public grids. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, what what in more general terms, what do you think? Are there any regulatory hurdles to more to the expansion of solar, both household and utility scale? Is there something that you like to see? Uh, what's on your sort of wish list, as it were, uh, Naomi, that you'd like to see? Uh, you know, you're you're based in Brussels. What do you, what would you like to see the policymakers there put in place to 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 incentivize further further growth in the sector? My wish list, uh, yeah, would be. I mean, the sector is is going um, is going quite well now. I think the question is to yeah consolidate the growth in the in the long term. Um, I mean, a first point was uh, and still is really uh, regulatory certainty. Uh, we've been through in the past now two years um, through a, a, a period of significant uncertainty with on, on the design of the electricity markets. With the introduction of the mar- those market caps, we already uh, talked a lot about it. So, so caps on the electricity price that was impacting uh, all of the contracts that were, that, that were derived from that electricity price. On top of that, we had, it was a regulatory mess with countries um, introducing their own measures, cooked at their own source, and changing every three months. So it was it was very messy. So ha- keeping regulatory stability uh, and keeping fundament keeping fundamentals of the markets um, is the number one uh, number one thing. Um, the second thing uh, and the second challenge is really grids. So uh, first, very statically being able to get your grid connection uh, on time and we ha- without too much hurdles. And second, being able to inject your electricity without being uh, curtailed too much or being, without being cut too much. And last, uh, another last point is uh, is permitting. Uh, we we still have uh, we still have some issues with permitting. It's still uh, it's still complex. It's still difficult even to just access the land that you need for for your project. And uh, and I think we shouldn't forget the element of skills. So. Uh, the amount of people we need to install projects. Uh, and I think it's uh, a, a concern that the solar sector has as many other industries. Mm. I mean, if I can just sort of finish off today, Naomi, we're talking a little about kind of sort of innovation within the sector and ways to combat the issue of curtailment and negative prices. I mean, you've seen the kind of development, or at least maybe it's, it's still embryonic, I'd say, but uh, the hybrid PPAs, for example, where you have the, the solar PPA plus storage. Is that something that you think we'll see more of where, so in a way of, of the markets finding a way to cope with these issues of curtailment and, and negative prices? Is that something you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, to cope with what you're saying, but also to uh, to cope with the grid connection costs, because if you're able to store your uh, peak production 
uh, at, and displace it at other times of the day, you don't need as big of a cable, basically. Um, so yeah, no, no, definitely that's something we're, we're really interested in. There's also hybrid projects, uh, solar and hydro, solar and, and wind that I think we'll see. Um, and, and yeah, we're, we're working on it. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's very promising. We, we do need, uh, to talk about it, to educate, uh, PPA buyers to this kind of projects. We do need some uh, hybrid uh, hybrid project senders, but the real bottleneck is really the the grid connection again, because um, because we're not yet mature on uh, what happens if you want to connect a solar and a storage together or a solar and a wind together. It's in fact, as we speak, discussed in Brussels uh, in a very technical regulation called the uh, network code. What happens? Can can you can you calculate and make the the assessments on both of the assets or one one assets after the other, which is quite burdensome. And the second thing is that if you get a grid connection for your project and you've operated your project for 10, 15 years, and then you want to hybridize it with with storage, you don't do exactly what you want, uh, and and uh, and it's it's very burdensome to uh, to be able to uh, ask to connect a new asset to this. So voilà, it's uh, very innovative, but like everything that is innovative in Europe, it's very difficult because it doesn't enter the right uh, the right case. Yeah, because because the the regulation maybe isn't as flexible. Or but I, I, if I understood you correctly, Naomi, you're saying basically start with the grids, uh, solve those kind of bottlenecks, both both uh, physical and regulatory, and then the rest will follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, and I think. I think here we also need to. It's exactly what you're saying. It's uh, it's all about innovation, uh, both in technologies and in regulation. So it's really something that we need to uh, to streamline in in energy regulation. Allow the SOs to innovate, to test new things. The only thing is that we need results. We need to advance. We need lower grid connection times. We need less curtailment, uh, etc. So green card to innovate. Perfect, Nomi. Thank you very much for being a guest on the Monta Weekly Podcast. Thanks for having me.